Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada, and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Well, getting into October 2023. And in today's show, this is kind of the third part of that series, the Declaration of Independence, the history of the Constitution, and today, the history of the Bill of Rights. One of the most important ingredients and foundations to our freedoms. And it did not materialize smoothly. But you'll hear that story, and then I'll tell you the rest of the story on the Bill of Rights. And then we're going to have a big rat-a-tat-tat. Let me tell you that <laughs> what is going on in the world is absolutely insane, becoming more insane, and becoming ever more rapid. We're going to cover stories all the way from COVID, COVID jab, COVID studies, legal things that are happening which affect you, and I mean affect you dramatically, and a whole bunch of quick little, should we say, hits of stories, all of which, of course, you can read under Rat-a-tat-tat or the appropriate section on the website on the rightsideradio.com. If you did not listen to the Declaration of Independence history two weeks ago or the Constitution history last week, please do so. These three shows, this one and the previous two, go together. These are your founding documents. This is the foundation of your freedoms. This is what we need to fight to keep intact and to protect despite the withering and relentless attacks of the Marxist left. And for our rant story today, which ties right into the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the attack those documents are under. So we have this pivot, and it's uh, a mainstay in irrigation, and it's a mainstay in hay production. And we run it late to generate fall forage, and winter forage for cows which winter here. Well, one of the things that you definitely don't want to pivot to do is to freeze up. And you know, looking at the long range weather, even though it's beautiful, not a cloud in the sky, 75 degrees, probably 5% humidity, Rocky Mountain fall, dynamite. The weather report for the end of this week, next weekend, and going into October shows weather deteriorating, temperatures dropping, perhaps snow. So, I gave instructions today to shut that pivot down, drain it, do all the things you have to do to winterize it, and we're going to call it quits for this irrigation system. And the moral of this story is when you see something bad coming, you act proactively, not reactively. Keep that in mind as we go through today's show and the Bill of Rights, all of which are under attack by a Marxist left. And you and me, we are the only lines of defense. So let's start off with our founder's quote. We're going to deviate from Hamilton and Madison and Thomas Jefferson today. Instead, we're going to give you a quote from Benjamin Franklin. You know, in the wholly contested, I mean very rancorous, almost to the point of fisticuffs, Convention of States in 1787, there was a number of folks, believe it or not, who liked the system of government of the British monarchy we had just broken away from, who thought, on the other hand, that if we didn't have a monarchy, we should have a president for life, kind of an aristocratic, authoritative ruler, benevolent dictator of sorts. But there were a number of folks, including most of the smaller states in the Union, who were not happy with what they viewed as the 
insufficient protections of individual liberties and states' rights that were enunciated in the Constitution. These eventually devolved into two factions, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. But some of the founders who were actually enamored with the thought of an aristocracy, with the thought of a monarchy, would surprise you. Alexander Hamilton, in fact, believe it or not, Alexander Hamilton, on June 18, 1787, called the British government, quote, the best in the world, unquote. And he proposed a model that was very similar to the British form of government. There were others like him. There were rumors that were swirling around the country that there was a plot to invite the second son of George III, Frederick, Duke of York, who was the secular bishop in Prussia, to be the king of the United States. Now, whether or not this was early psyops by the anti-federalists or not, we'll never know. But nonetheless, the newspapers around the country, almost without exception, took up the sword of anti-federalism and were blasting out incredible and scathing editorials and articles. And the anti-federalists comprised mostly of the smaller states who were concerned with their what they perceived to be their lack of representation in the House of Representatives, which was determined by population, which favored the larger states, were absolutely adamant and insistent, as were the anti-federalists, the folks who really didn't want a federal government at all, or, if we had to have one, the weakest possible federal government one could imagine. And understand that there was a really popular feeling throughout the country who had experienced the Revolutionary War that any serious attempt to establish a monarchy, again, which they had just thrown out with much blood and treasure, or some type of benevolent dictatorship-type government, was absolutely not going to happen. And it was in this period that many of the states actually contemplated breaking away from the Union of States, the Confederation of States, under the Articles of Confederation, and going their own way. This was heightened by the fact that on June 29th, the delegates from the small states lost their first critical battle. The convention approved a resolution establishing the population as the basis for representation in the House of Representatives, which really favored the larger states. The subsequent proposal from the small states was that the states have at least equal representation in the Senate, and that vote resulted in a tie. It did not originally pass. And there are writings from the convention, including one from one representative, that said the convention, quote, was on the verge of dissolution, scarce held together by the strength of a hair, unquote. By the way, by July 10th, George Washington, who originally was not even going to participate in the convention, he didn't think it would work, he didn't want his name attached to something that was going to fail, but eventually decided to participate because he realized that his lack of participation would undermine any of what he thought was the remote chance the convention might come up with something and send the wrong message to the country. On July 10th, he was so frustrated over this really incredible and foundational bedlock that he expressed that he was sorry, quote, having any agency in the proceedings, unquote. And he called the opponents, this is really interesting, kind of like Hamilton, of a strong central government, narrow-minded politicians, under the influence of local views, unquote. On the other hand, there were delegates who were just as adamant that the federal government should have its wings clipped, that it should have little or no power, that the individuals, the countrymen, 
of America, the, the citizens of America, and the states, be they big or small, should have almost complete autonomy. One of those folks was by the name of Luther Martin of Maryland. He, by the way, was one of the most effective debaters at the convention. And his, he, was, he was not a pleasant guy to debate. If you had an argument with Luther, he'd bury you. I mean, he would not stop hammering you until you were dust and pulverized. But despite his, shall we say, unfriendly approach to debate, he swayed many people, many people in the population and many of the newspapers around the country who carried a lot of weight at that time. It was one of the only forms of kind of mass communication. There was a pamphlet written by a guy by the name of George Mason who opposed the new government, or should we say the centralized shaping of the new government that the Federalists were at that time in the convention prevailing on. And he was one of the three delegates in the end, on the very final day of the convention, who refused to sign the Constitution because it lacked a Bill of Rights. In other words, the more the Federalists had their way in the convention, the more the groundswell grew to protect the people and the states from what the Federalists were accomplishing in the drafting of the Constitution. Things got so unsettled, so, so there was so much animosity that when the Federalists dominated, in other words, strong central government dominated Pennsylvania Assembly, right? This is where Independence Hall is located. When they lacked a quorum on September 29th to call a state ratifying convention, there was a mob that formed in Philadelphia. And in order to provide the necessary numbers for a quorum so that Pennsylvania could ratify the Constitution and then what had been agreed to be added, the Bill of Rights, they dragged two anti-Federalist members, literally from their beds, from their homes, and they dragged them through the streets to the State House, where those poor representatives were forced to stay, even though they didn't vote, and they refused to vote. They constituted a quorum, and the Assembly voted. Why don't we call it a curious example of participatory democracy. On October 5th, there's a guy by the name of Samuel Bryan. He's an anti-federalist. And he published the first of his Sentinel essays in Philadelphia's Independent Gazetteer. This is a big paper back then. And it was this essay, these series of essays, the Sentinel essays, were republished in newspapers in various states, particularly the smaller states. And they attacked what they felt was the sweeping power of the central government that was being ensconced in the Constitution and the undermining of state sovereignty and the absence of a Bill of Rights which guaranteed the individual liberties. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion were the two biggies back then. And he threatened that the anti-federalist forces, if they didn't get their way, would, quote, melt down the United States, unquote. So understand at this point in time within the population of the United States, particularly in the smaller states, and particularly in certain states like Massachusetts, there was an overwhelming prejudice against aristocrats, the elite, any central governing authority, any type of central power figure. I mean, the folks had just fought a revolution. They had just thrown out a monarch. They certainly didn't want to replace whatever the shortcomings of the Confederation under the Articles of Confederation with what they had just fought against and kicked from our shores. And they were insistent. 
that there needed at the least to be a Bill of Rights guaranteeing individual liberties, particularly those of freedom of speech and freedom of religion, the two that most people were melted, uh, were focused on at that time. By the way, there were riots in various states, and there were, you know, fisticuffs and actual physical disputes and the breakup of various gatherings by the Federalist or the Anti-Federalist forces. I mean, it was a time of really great tumult and violence. Like Samuel Bryan's essays, the Sentinel essays, which stirred up Anti-Federalist sentiment across the country, and particularly in Pennsylvania. In New York, the Constitution was kind of under siege, again in the press, by a series of essays that was signed simply Cato, C-A-T-O. And it was those essays, the Anti-Federalist essays, which lit a fire under Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and Madison, who began publishing the series of essays I told you about last week, known as the Federalist Papers, or at this now known as the Federalist Papers. There were 85 of those essays, they were penned in the end by Hamilton himself, who had now completely reversed his position that the British government was the best in the world and we should emulate it. Instead, these papers kind of probed the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, and there were weaknesses, and the need for an energetic, as he called it, national government. It's kind of interesting. Thomas Jefferson himself later called the Federalist Papers, quote, the best commentary on the principles of government ever written, unquote. The Federalist folks were pretty well organized, and they had good leadership. They had a lot of determination. The Anti-Federalists, on the other hand, although it was really the majority of people in the country, were not organized, and they didn't have a single leader. It, it was a disjointed type of effort against the efforts of the Federalists to have a stronger central government. For instance, the Anti-Federalists in the southern states were concerned about navigation legislation because of the Mississippi, and they were concerned about slavery and the import of slaves, which we talked about last week, and direct taxation and the loss of state sovereignty, which was really a concern of all the smaller states, no matter where, where located in the country. And they, along with the press, Jesus, does this sound familiar? They resorted to kind of, shall we say, fanciful predictions on the horrors that might emerge under a new constitution. And, you know, their concerns back then, <laughs> see how they mirror the concerns now, folks. And we know that the concerns now are valid. But they warned that under the new constitutions, pagans and deists would control the government, that there would be an attack on religion, that the use of inquisition-like torture could be instituted as punishment for federal crimes. Gee, what's that unequal application of the law that we see going on everywhere right now? And that even the Pope could be elected president. Well, you know, not the Pope, but certainly a cadaver who's unthinking. I'll tell you a little bit about his latest escapades in the rat-a-tat-tat. And the Anti-Federalists argued that the government was going to be under the Constitution and without the Bill of Rights, or it wasn't called the Bill of Rights at that time, but without protections for individuals and individual states, was going to be, quote, impersonal, unrepresentative, dominated by men of wealth, and oppressive of the poor and working classes, unquote. You see any similarities to what's going on today, folks? The argument of the Federalists was that the spread out nature of the country, its different geographic regions, and their, should we say, local wishes, desires, and wants, was all the more reason to have a stronger federal government, to kind of bind this huge fabric together into a cloth. In the end, the Federalists prevailed on a number of important issues, but the Anti-Federalists began to hone their argument in on a Bill of Rights. Not called that at that time, but called protections of individual liberty and state sovereignty. And to get Massachusetts, one of the last small state holdouts, to ratify the Constitution, the Federalists agreed to come up with amendments, or as they called them, 
Articles, which eventually became what we know as the Bill of Rights. And they abandoned their argument against a Bill of Rights as we know it today. Their argument had been that, well, the states have constitutions and those state constitutions guarantee your rights. That was not good enough for the Anti-Federalists. By the way, very fortunately, not good enough. Because the Anti-Federalists, for all their tactics, for all their overstatement of the ills and problems, they were right on a number of scores, and we're kind of seeing that play out today. And in the end, it was the backing of Jefferson and of Madison that got the Bill of Rights, or, or at that time, the Articles, over the hump of Federalist opposition in the convention. Thomas Jefferson, who was a Federalist, wrote to Madison that a Bill of Rights was, quote, what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, unquote. And Madison wrote back that he was convinced that a Bill of Rights was necessary if they were to get the Constitution accepted at all, but also that the, quote, fundamental maxims of free government would be a good ground for appeal to the sense of community against potential oppression and would counteract the impulses of interest and passion. And it was Madison's support of the Bill of Rights that in the end became critical. It was the key. He was one of the new representatives from Virginia to the first federal Congress, which had been established by the Constitution. And understand that all this is happening within a very condensed time frame. I mean, you have the ratification of the Constitution by nine states. <laughs> the other five states, the smaller states, were refusing to sign without certain concessions, particularly the Bill of Rights. And the Constitutional Convention, the Convention of States, which had ratified now, drafted and ratified the Constitution, knew that to keep the Constitution intact, to have total ratification of it, they had to move quickly to appease those factions, both popular in the population and in the holdout states, so that the whole thing didn't disintegrate. And it was Madison who worked tirelessly, I mean, night and day, to persuade the House of Representatives to enact amendments to the Constitution, the Articles, as they were called then. And eventually he drafted and he was able to shepherd through the House 17 original amendments in the early months of the Congress. Those 17 amendments were later trimmed to 12 in the Senate. Once again, they were called Articles. On October 2nd, 1789, President Washington, that's right, George Washington was then president, sent to each of the states, the 13 states, a copy of those 12 amendments that had been adopted by the Congress in September. By December 15th, 1791, three quarters of the states had ratified the 10 Articles, which we now call amendments in the Bill of Rights, and I'll give you a, a great quote by James Madison. When all the dust had settled, all this was done, all 13 states had ratified the Constitution because there was now a Bill of Rights. The 17 articles had been boiled down to 12 and then to 10, which we know as the Bill of Rights. He wrote, quote, No government can be perfect, and that which is the least imperfect is therefore the best government, unquote. And I think it might be really, really, really instructive for us to examine what at that time was called the Articles, and now we know as the Ten Amendments and the Bill of Rights. So let me go through them for you. In Old English language, as they were written, Article the First, this set representation at one representative for 30,000 people. This was not passed by the states. It was not ratified by three-quarters of the state. Article the Second, no law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. That was the second one not ratified by the states of the 12 that George Washington sent to them. Later on, interestingly enough, that would become the 27th Amendment to the Constitution. 
Article the Third, which we now know as the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of people to peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Article the Fourth, now known as the Second, a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Article the Fifth, now known as the Third Amendment. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but only in a manner to be prescribed by law. Article the Sixth, now known as the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath and affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Article the Seventh, now the Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or other infamous crime, remember, plead the Fifth, unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. By the way, folks, this now Fifth Amendment as we know it, that life, liberty, and property without just compensation, that's going to be a bigger and bigger deal in the coming future. And we're going to have, we're going to have many shows on what the government is doing to undermine private property rights and to take them from you and convert it to their own use or redistribute it in payment for votes from their quote-unquote victim constituent classes. Article the Eighth, the Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Article the Ninth. In suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall otherwise be reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. Article the Tenth, now the Eighth. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Article the Eleventh, now the Ninth Amendment. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And the Tenth Amendment, the one that has to do with state rights. At that time, the Article the Twelfth. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So there you have it. And now the rest of the story. And you may have noticed we kind of skipped over a founder's quote at the beginning of the show. A little bit out of sequence, but not really. Because at the end of this brouhaha, and remembering, listen to my previous two shows on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, remembering that all this was conducted in secret, absolutely non-transparent, the doors of Independence Hall guarded by armed guards, 
there was a huge gathering of people almost every day outside of Independence Hall, kind of anxiously awaiting to see what the convention had come up with, either that day or in total. And when all the dust was settled and Benjamin Franklin emerged from Independence Hall, at that time, by the way, in his early 80s, he was like the oldest convention delegate and the most venerable of the statesmen of the United States. He was accosted by an elderly woman and she called out, what have you given us? Have you given us a king? And he replied in his famous quote, no, we have given you a republic if you can keep it. And folks, it is up to us to keep it. There's no one else. We're it. Tag, we're it. The fate of this republic rests on our shoulders. You need to get up. You need to get off the couch. You need to turn off the football game. And you need to get involved. Remember the words in the Declaration of Independence. It is not only your right, but your duty to throw off a tyrannical government. Remember the edicts in the Constitution. And particularly after today's show, remember the rights that are preserved in the Bill of Rights, now that you know the tempest which accompanied their formulation. There is no such statement of rights as a founding document in any other country on the planet. May I suggest you summon that same American DNA which led to the formation of these documents by the men who cast off a king who defeated the greatest army in the world and that you get involved without delay because folks time is not our ally okay folks let's do rat-a-tat-tat and you'll notice that most of these rat-a-tat-tats are directly applicable to the shows of the last three weeks declaration of independence constitution and today's bill of rights because all of them show in one way shape or form attempted subversion of those rights attempted attack on those rights and a definite goal to take away both state sovereignty and individual freedoms in the United States and around the globe. Let's start off with Michelle Lujan Grisham. Oh, yes, what a peach she is, the governor of New Mexico. She recently signed an executive order which forbid the open and and concealed carry of firearms for a, you know, a testing period, boil the frog slowly. 30 days in Albuquerque and the surrounding county. She declared it, by the way, under the guise of a public health order. Oh, well, you'll see that in the future. And think about the second article, Second Amendment. Well, local officials said they weren't going to enforce it, and a court issued a temporary restraining order against it. And Governor Grisham, dedicated Marxist that she is, can read the writing on the wall and rescinded the order. It's only a temporary victory, folks. They'll be back. There was a poll by Real Clear Politics. Kind of chilling. And this goes right back to the amendments again. In this case, the First Amendment. It seems that a huge chunk of the Democrats in this country think that Americans have too much of some freedoms, one in particular, and it should only be granted, it should only be exercised under certain conditions, quote unquote. One third believe that, uh, one third of Democrats believe that the First Amendment provides too much freedom. 47% of Dems say free speech should be legal only under certain circumstances. 34% of Democrats believe Americans in general have too much freedom. 75% of Democrats say government has a responsibility, a responsibility, folks, to censor hateful, oh yes, who determines that, social media posts. And only 31% of Democrats agree with the statement, quote, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, unquote. Interesting 
and this goes back to where we have fallen down on the education system, among respondents under the age of 30, 42% believed it was, quote, more important for the government to be able to restrict free speech for national security reasons. Conversely, only 26% of those over 65 thought the same. And this is kind of chilling. A majority of the respondents, both Republican and Democrat, although far less Republicans, supported the notion that government has a responsibility to restrict hateful, oh yeah, there's that word again, posts and discrimination. Three quarters of Democrats and 50% of Republicans. Right along that same lines and right in tune with our show today, it was reported by the Washington Examiner just a few days ago, in fact, that the Attorney Generals of Louisiana, Missouri, I've told you about that lawsuit, gone to the Fifth Appeals Court, upheld a stay against the government and government agencies consorting with social media to censor Americans, and it's now up to the Supreme Court who's going to rule on it. Well, those two attorney generals who've done a gangbusters job, I mean, we need to be doing a lot more of this. And you should be getting on your state attorney general and your local DAs. You know, what the Democrats can do, as in Trump, which we'll be talking about here shortly, we can do to them. And with complete justification, because they are corrupt. Anyway, those state attorney generals, Louisiana, Missouri, filed a request on Friday, and they want to include in the ban on censorship and collusion with big tech and other media sources, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the State Department's Global Engagement Center, which is just an extension of the WEF, and the Stanford-based, oh, there's Stanford again, Election Integrity Project. Oh, well, what an oxymoron that is. Hopefully that'll be granted by the Fifth Circuit. And then once again, back to the amendments. South Carolina, go South Carolina. They just became the latest state library association to say bye-bye, American Library Association, which is known as the ALA, which, by the way, is headed by an openly and admitted Marxist president, kind of like the teachers union, you know, Randy Weingarten. And the letter saying shove it to the ALA from South Carolina, it was rather to the point and called the ALA's guidance, quote-unquote, to librarians to kind of infiltrate the library with gross sexual and explicit sexual and transgender and gender dystopia information, and to play scheduling games to make sure conservative groups can't use library meeting rooms abhorrent. Hopefully, other states will be joining South Carolina. I believe there's already 25 that have told the ALA to shove it. And then we come to, once again, another matter directly, directly related to the articles back there in the 1780s and 90s and the amendments, the Bill of Rights as we know it today. In the New York case against Trump, you have that slimy state attorney general, Marxist to the hilt, and the case that was brought against him there was basically that he falsified financial documents. Well, let me give you a little background. Number one, his financial statements have to do with property values. I can tell you being somewhat conversant in real estate, that property values can vary widely. They can vary, and they do vary, from appraiser to appraiser. They can vary on highest and best use overall or to a particular user. They can vary on potential future value in terms of what can and cannot be done, such as zoning. And of course, then you have the lowest possible valuations of property, which is your county tax assessor. You've noticed on your homes that your homes are assessed way less than the market value of the home. Well, 
There's a judge by the name of Engoran, and he is the judge on this case. You'll never guess who he was who he was appointed by. I'm sure you can figure it out. And he ruled just a day or two that Trump falsified these documents to these banks. Never mind, no harm was done to any person. Never mind that every single loan in question on which these supposedly false financial statements were submitted has been repaid in full. No bank lost a dime. And never mind that the financial statements... Every single one of them had a disclaimer on them, as they should. Which, and I won't read the whole thing to you, the articles, remember, are under rat-a-tat-tat, and treason, corruption, family safety, whatever the appropriate subcategory is, on the website, on the right side, radio.com. But here's just part of that disclaimer. The use of different market assumptions and or estimation methodologies may have a material effect on the estimated current value amounts. Well... Despite there was a disclaimer, despite no harm, despite the whole thing, this judge has ruled, <laughs> you know, this is, this is so indicative of this attack on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that these statements submitted to banks were fraudulent. And pretty much his order, because I've read it, and I hope to have a link on the website to you, has pretty much ordered Trump to stop doing business in New York State you know, he owns just a few things there, and ordered Trump's properties to be fire sold under a court-appointed receiver. And do you know what values he used? The county tax assessor's values. The very lowest by increments in some cases of 50 to 100x of the value. Now, there may be some, you know, psyops going here because his decision is published right at the time that the Biden document scandal and the Biden bribery scandal is blowing up. I mean, like exponentially blowing up, which, by the way, brings us to another little diversion here, which I'm going to be bringing up later in the rat-a-tat-tat, and that's Gavin Newsom. You'll see the correlation here in just a moment. But it appears that ABC News, oh, what, you mean legacy media? They broke a story yesterday saying that the Biden classified documents case has now mushroomed into, quote, a sprawling investigation, unquote. Well, how much of that is psyops and how much of that is true, we don't know, but it ought to be a sprawling investigation. And then House Oversight Chairman James Comer, the Republican from Kentucky, is doing a bang-up job up there. He announced yesterday that they've gotten even more documents on the Biden bribery deal. And it looks like, oh, from China, right. You know, two large wire transfers, like $5 million each, that were paid to quote-unquote Hunter Biden, listed Joe Biden's Delaware home address, his home address, as the recipient on those wire transfers. So much for all that hand-wringing by the Democratic Marxists that there's no direct linkage. And by the way, there's loads of other evidence, but this kind of puts the nail in the coffin of that by the Democratic Marxists. And then I didn't get to it last week, but you know, this goes right back to what you know is going to be a coming attack on your rights. I mean, find that American DNA, stand up, and let's be proactive about thwarting what you know is coming. Remember the rant story. So last week, the Hindustan Times ran this story. It had a headline, Nipah, that's N-I-P-A-H, virus. Health Department tightens restrictions in Kerala, unquote. Kerala is a region in India. 33 million people live there. It's divided into a whole bunch, tens of thousands of tiny wards, which are like villages or, you know, neighborhood councils. 
and wards have like five to 20,000 people. Nipah virus is a relatively new, very high fatality respiratory virus. It first appeared in India back in 2001, 40 to 75% mortality rate, and it's rated only for BSL-4, the highest biolab security requirement biolabs. In fact, the CDC designates it, <laughs> the CDC, wow, wow, as a bioterrorism agent. Huh. It seems that, number one, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, oh, funded by who? Oh, that's right, Fauci and the NIH, has been playing around with Nipah virus. Hmm, I wonder what they could be doing. You know, Nipah virus is not that dangerous because it doesn't spread through the air. It requires direct human contact and because it infects people rapidly and the result is not too good lots of people don't survive to spread it there's only been two deaths in this quote-unquote outbreak oh in india they have 1.6 billion people in india folks and there's only been one documented case of human transmission but despite that despite all the post-pandemic studies of lockdowns not working and actually doing more harm than good and mass and the whole nine yards you know the mandate zone india has now designated 45 of these wards in kerala as containment zones which includes lockdowns no access into those wards no egress from those wards shutting down schools no public gatherings all non-essential businesses have to close mandating mass required testing and tracing and a 5 p.m curfew oh does this sound familiar whatever could they be planning for us but here's kind of the rest of the story on this little brouhaha that they're trying to cook up because you know covid has kind of lost its luster you know what i mean last year in july this is before all this happened in india moderna and fauci's niaid started a clinical trial for a new mRNA vaccine for, oh yes, the Nipah virus. Kind of like what happened, you know, in having all the patents ready for the vaccines two years in advance of the COVID out. You would hate to think that these people kind of knew in advance what was coming and didn't tell us and then lied to us about it when it arrived. They wouldn't do that, would they? And all of it that they wouldn't do designed to erode your rights under the Ten Amendments and the Constitution. Think about those proactive thoughts. Find that American DNA, folks. This stuff is coming at us. By the way, you know when they were, should we say preemptively, working on this vaccine with Moderna? There was a grant, a $2.3 million grant that Fauci handed out. Who do you think that went to to study this Nipah virus? In bats, of course. Oh, yes, bats. Here we are, back to the bats. It went to Peter Daszak of Echo Health Alliance, right? The guy who laundered all the money from Fauci to Wuhan to conduct the gain of function that eventually became the conjured COVID pandemic and obviously is going to become some kind of pandemic that they will use to trample on your First Amendment, Second Amendment, and the rest of the amendment rights along with the Constitution in the future. And you'll never guess what another published study says is highly effective against the Nipah virus. Oh, that's right. Ivermectin, you know, that animal horseworm paste that you shouldn't even get near when considering remedies, antidotes, and things that can save your life in these, uh, shall we say, days of contrived genes, genuses, and viruses. Along those lines, by the way, that kind of brings us to the jab, which also brings us, because of the mandates, contrary to 
the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, right back to our historical stories of the last three weeks and today. New study, published, I believe, last week in The Lancet, respected but, uh, shall we say, politically swayed medical journal, quote, biodistribution of mRNA COVID-19 vaccines in human breast milk, unquote. Basically, they found that that mRNA, which was supposed to just stay at your shoulder, you know, no way it could go anywhere else. It's completely safe and effective. Well, no, it's present in human breast milk, and it's most concentrated during the first two days after you get the jab. Quote, our findings demonstrate that the COVID-19 vaccine mRNA is not confined to the injection site, but spreads systemically and is packaged into breast milk extracellular vesicles. And just this week, a Canadian public interest group, Correlation, they published a new study, quote, COVID-19 vaccine-associated mortality in the Southern Hemisphere, unquote. I'll tell you what, let me give you the researchers' own words. In the 17 countries, this is South America basically, folks, there is no evidence in all-cause mortality by time data of any beneficial effect of COVID-19 vaccines. There is no association in time between COVID-19 vaccination and any proportionate reduction in ACM. That's all-cause mortality. The opposite occurs. Let me continue. Nine of the 17 countries have no detectable excess ACM in the period of approximately one year after a pandemic was declared on the 11th of March 2020 by the World Health Organization. Oh, our friends. Until the vaccines are rolled out. Let me continue. Unprecedented peaks in ACM, all-cause mortality, occur in the summer, January through February, that's Southern Hemisphere, folks, of 2022 in the Southern Hemisphere and equatorial latitude countries, which are synchronous with or immediately preceded by rapid COVID-19 vaccine booster dose rollouts, third or fourth doses. This phenomenon is present in every case with sufficient mortality data. 15 countries, period. By the way, the conclusion of the study is that government should immediately end the policy of pushing shots, particularly on vulnerable elderly people, which, of course, we were told are the first ones that need it. Hmm. And that study, by the way, there's a link to it on the COVID page, rat-a-tat-tat, family safety, and under the audio bar on the rightsideradio.com. And then the very last one here, once again, running right to our stories of the last three weeks in the Bill of Rights. So Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, you read all the all the media stuff. You're not reading anything now, of course, that, you know, he was being impeached because of bribery and this and that and whatever other contrived stuff. And that impeachment was brought by the Speaker of the Texas House, a guy by the name of Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N. And it seems that it was brought within weeks of Paxson announcing an investigation into Big Pharma and the jabs and their ingredients and the representations of Big Pharma and the representations of hospitals and doctors to people and the mandates of those jabs. It's amazing what that timing was. must just be a coincidence. In any event, Paxton, he was impeached by the House in the rush to judgment instigated by Phelan. But he was acquitted in the Senate last week. So he's back in his attorney general, which is great because he rocks. And in a kind of turn of justice, Phelan is being virtually commanded by the Republican Party in the House to step down and resign his position as speaker, which, of course, he's refusing to do. So it looks like he's going to be voted out. Too bad he can't be prosecuted out. And hopefully Paxton will get back on the charging horse, draw his saber, and bear down on the investigation that he had begun when it was so 
rudely interrupted for about six months. How convenient for Big Pharma and the rollout of the new jab that CDC is promoting. With, by the way, no human testing. Zero human testing. Just 10 mice. <laughs> yeah. Let me rush down there and get in line. We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Remember, look in the mirror. Repeat after me. And repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.